We are in 2 Peter, continuing our study in 2 Peter today. And in 2 Peter 1.13, and some verses that Cody looked at last week, he says, I think it's right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. And so, so Peter's writing these things to, to stir us up. And that's the word that's used to, of when Jesus was aroused from his sleep and got up in the boat and uh, calmed the storm. Peter here says that he's trying to rouse us from our sleep with these things that he's about to write. And this is because we have a tendency to go to sleep. We have a tendency to become less attentive to the faith, to become less attentive to the things of the Lord, to be more awake to earthly concerns than we are to Jesus. It's easy for us to drift off to sleep. And so this is why in scripture we have Jesus and Peter and Paul all encouraging us again and again to stay awake. Don't be asleep. First Thessalonians 5, 6, Paul says, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. And Peter here wants to wake us up from, from what he says in verse 13 by reminding us of some things. And so, so what are these things that he reminds us of to wake us up? What, what is it that we need to know that will allow us to be alive and awake to the things of the Lord? And in verse 16, he says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts." Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so the first thing that he says in this section is that he wants to stir us up by reminding us that Christianity is not based on mythology. In other words, we will fall asleep if we start to see Christianity even as good mythology. Verse 16, again, he says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. So the faith that we believe in is not based on myths and legends and fables, but it's based on the eyewitness testimony of those who saw Jesus. This is big because the Greeks had lots of myths and legends that they passed on from generation to generation. And, and some of them they kind of believed in, but for the most part, they knew that they were just fables. They considered them useful stories, cleverly devised myths. There were stories that were made up to try to support some positive values, to try to get people behaving in a good way. And ultimately, it didn't really matter whether those stories were true. Because behaving like those stories were true made you better, and that was really all that mattered. And our culture has some myths like that, too. Like, for example, there's a myth in our culture that porcupines can shoot their quills at, at people who are coming after them. And a lot of people believe that. Maybe you believe that, but they can't. Um, they, they can't do that. But if you believe that myth, that a porcupine can shoot its quills, you'll probably never get hurt by a porcupine because you're not going to get that close. Like, you're going to stay away because you believe it can shoot its quills. And so it's almost like a useful lie. It keeps you from getting too close. It keeps you from getting hurt. But ultimately, it's just not true at all. 
And the Greeks mostly knew that their stories about their gods didn't actually happen. But if you acted like they were true, in some ways you'd live better, you'd be more patriotic. These were, were useful myths for them to pass on to other people. And so they were loyal to those stories. And Peter says, yeah, I know there are stories like that that are out there, but that's not the kind of story that lies at the foundation of Christianity. Because remember, Peter was an eyewitness. He was there with Jesus. He was there with God who had come in the flesh. And so he says the whole thing, it's not a myth because he was there to see it all. He participated in it. He experienced it. And he's saying that he wants to stir us up by reminding us that Christianity is not just a useful tale, but it's something that actually happened. We're not called just to act like the stories of Jesus are true. They actually are true. And Peter says, I know they're true because I was there. And this matters because Christians' stories main, Christianity's story's main aim is not first and foremost to reform our behavior, but it's first and foremost to get us redeemed. And we aren't redeemed by the things that we do. So it's not like we're doing the right thing with our Christianity if we just start behaving well. We need to be redeemed by, by trusting in Jesus. And there is no redemption without a redeemer. There is no being saved without a savior. And so at the heart of Christianity is not a fable or a myth, but it's the proclamation that Jesus Christ, the savior, really did come and live among us. He really did die on that cross. He was buried and he rose again. These are true stories. And if that didn't happen, then there is no Christianity. Now, there are a lot of people today who would say that Christianity is at best a useful myth. You know, if everybody were to kind of believe it or act like it's true, that would hold society together. And, and that's good for society. It could do the same thing that some of those Greek and Roman gods did. There are also people who say that Christianity is totally fraudulent because all it is, is just a retelling of some other old myths. That it was derived from all these pagan legends, these pagan stories. There were lots of religions that were just like Christianity that went before it. And then this was just sort of a Jewish retelling of all those stories. And so Christianity ultimately isn't real. And they would note some stories like, like the story of Mithras, the god of the sun, who was immaculately conceived and then traveled with 12 disciples that were promised eternal life. Or Dionysus, who was the god of fruitfulness and merriment that turned water into wine. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh is a king who's part divine and part human. Osiris was the king of the underworld who was killed by Seth, but then resurrected to have power to judge the dead and influence the living. And I think every year at Christmas time, we hear all kinds of stories about how there have been many virgin birth stories, many virgin births in many different religions. And so Christianity, it seems, was just the latest Jewish-influenced retelling of some of those same old stories. It's just repackaged mythology. So what do we do with those claims? Well, for one, on closer examination, those stories aren't as similar to Christianity as they might sound. In fact, you kind of have to, to put together many different versions of those stories to make those similarities look a little bit more stark because there are lots of different versions of those stories, lots of different tellings. And if you, if you took element A from this story and element B from this and C from this, you could put them together and show some, some similarities to Christianity. But most of those individual standalone retellings really aren't all that similar. So for example, virgin-born Mithras sprouted full-grown from a rock. 
that's really different than Christianity's conception of the virgin birth. It's not how Jesus came along. Uh, Osiris didn't fully resurrect, but resurrected in the underworld, still kind of dead, which is not how Jesus resurrected. He didn't resurrect kind of dead. He resurrected completely alive. It's a very different thing. And so we can't really read that story and say, you see, it's just like Jesus. It's really not. So the Christian story does stand out as far more unique than they might have us believe. But also we can't deny that there are similar elements between all of those stories and Christianity. In fact, there are similar, similar elements between all great stories and elements of Christianity. Whether it's Greek mythology or it's Marvel movies, we can see the story retold again and again and again of an enemy that's defeated, of a great rescue that's accomplished, of life from death, of joy from sadness. We hear these stories over and over again and they compel us and they do have some similarities to the Christian story. Now, early on, this is what kept C.S. Lewis, the author of Chronicles of Narnia, from believing in Christianity because he saw all these other myths and legends and stories. And then he saw Christianity as just one more myth, one more story. And in all these myths, all these legends, they're all interesting. They all capture our heart, but Christianity is just one more of them. And when he looked at those myths, he said, really at their core, they're just lies. He called them lies breathed through silver, that they're lies, useful lies, compelling lies, but because they didn't really happen, they, they are just lies. So Odysseus didn't blind Polyphemus. The frog didn't turn into a prince. Neo didn't defeat the Matrix. Spider-Man didn't rescue his friends at the Washington Monument. And Jesus didn't conquer death. These are all just kind of stories. And it's just one more story that didn't really happen. That's the way it was in the mind of Lewis. But then his buddy Tolkien, who, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, invested in him. He spent lots of time with him. They used to get together and discuss the mythical creatures that they were inventing, which is just total nerd fest. And so they would get together and do that and um, whatever you like, I guess. And so one day they're walking along a river, they're smoking their pipes, they're talking about why Christianity sounds like such a myth. And Tolkien proposes an alternative to Lewis. He says that all these great stories, whether they're old religions or myths or, or legends, they capture our hearts for a reason. We want to believe them. We crave certain stories. You see it in the books that we read. You see it in the movies we see that we've got all these stories that depict a better world with a utopian future. We have all these stories about escaping death, about love that's eternal, about good triumphing over evil, about heroes who save life when they face certain death. And, and real life never seems like it's as good as these stories, but we still want to hear these stories told again and again and again. We, we want to hear these stories about how good triumphs and how death can be escaped and that there's a better world that's possible and that's coming, that there's love out there that can change us. So Tolkien asks, why do we feel that way? Why do we love these stories? Why do we love movies like that? Why do we spend 15 bucks to go see a movie that tells stories like that? And like four times that if you buy the popcorn. Like, why, why is that something that we would invest our time in? And Tolkien's explanation is that we are made in the image of God, but we're fallen. So, so we know we have to die. We know that evil triumphs. We know that someday we'll lose all the people we love. But we also know that it shouldn't be that way. It's like written to, into our hearts that this is not the way it was intended to be good should triumph. 
Love should last. The world should be fixed. A better world is possible. And these stories move us because they say that that is possible. And so Tolkien said that in the story of Jesus, you have everything that moves you about stories. You have that escape from death and good triumphing and love conquering. And this one is not just one more story, but it's the underlying reality to which all of the other stories point. The resurrection is not just one more myth. It's the real thing that our craving for all of those other myths points to. Our hearts were made for that story. That story meets the fundamental need of our hearts. So we love to hear it told in all kinds of forms, in myths and legends and movies and books. And, and Tolkien called it, t- called Christianity the true myth because it's the one that's actually true underneath all the other ones that are lies that we believe. And so when C.S. Lewis started to see all those other myths and legends and religions, not as disproving Christianity, but actually pointing to its validity, he came to believe. And he put his faith in Jesus and he called himself the most reluctant convert in all of England. Because yeah, the Christian story reads like a myth, but it's more true to say that myths read like the Christian story. Those are the echoes of the real thing. Those are the shadows of the ultimate reality. And so Peter says, remember, be stirred up by remembering that we did not give ourselves to myths and legends when we became Christians. We give ourselves to reality. Verse 17, he talks about where he saw reality. He says, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter says, the reason I know these things aren't just myths is because I was there. And he describes this transfiguration scene, this time where Jesus took Peter plus other witnesses, James and John, brought them up on the mountain and then up on the mountain in front of them, he transfigured, he changed form, he he started to glow and a voice spoke from heaven. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell this story in in Mark's telling, this is how it goes in Mark 9, starting in verse two. It says, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Peter's a good pastor. Doesn't know what to say, so he says it. And and then it says, and a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So Peter spent time with Jesus. And he remembers that time when he went up on the mountain and he heard that voice from heaven, the voice of the father say, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And this is extra, but incidentally, today is is Father's Day. And I know that many of us as Christian fathers, when we hear about this call on our lives, that we're supposed to be involved fathers, different fathers because we're Christian, we get overwhelmed because we don't really know what to do. I mean, the majority of us didn't have very involved dads, let alone Christian dads. 
And as a result, we just kind of limp along because we didn't have any kind of example at all growing up. And, and sometimes we can use that as an excuse to not change our fathering at all. But some good news is that we do have a father. And we may struggle and we need each other and we will be weak and we'll all fail. We'll all probably mess our kids up to some degree. But if we're looking for an example, we can find one in our heavenly father. I mean, even right here as the father speaks, when Jesus is on the mountain, you have a present father. You have a father who speaks and affirms his child. You have a father who expresses love. You have a father who encourages. So we can start there. We can start by imitating that father and that'll go a long way toward helping us be better fathers to our kids. And so anyway, Peter was there. He, he heard the voice of the father and he says that being an eyewitness to all of this, seeing Jesus fulfill all that he knew the Bible had said that Jesus would be, did something else that wakes us from our sleep. Verse 19, he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So he says that seeing Jesus come and fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament just confirmed that the word of God is sure. He says that, that the Bible that he had, the Old Testament that he had, all of a sudden had even more credence because it predicted everything that came to pass in Jesus. He says, we were eyewitnesses to Jesus. He was just who the Bible said he would be. So we can trust the sure and confirmed word of God. He wants to stir us up. And one of the things he uses to stir us up is he reminds us that we can have confidence in the Bible as God's word. He says that the prophetic word of scripture wasn't just produced from the minds of people, but those people were carried along by the Holy Spirit as scripture was written. So in other words, people spoke, but they were being carried along in their words by God. And that's how we got the Bible that we have today. Now, those people all had their own unique backgrounds, their own unique personalities. They had their own unique styles that affected how that word was written. But because it's God's word, what we have is absolutely true and absolutely right in all regards. Now, sometimes like one of the criticisms of people who believe the Bible is that we claim that it's God's word, but then you read it and, and it's a very human book. Like you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all of them have different personalities. They're all telling the same story. They don't contradict, but they're telling it from different angles. You, you read Paul's writings and it's different than Peter's writings. And that's different than John's writings and Old Testament prophets are way different than David. So you have all these personalities, all these different people who write in all kinds of different ways. How can we say that this is God's word when this was clearly written by all these different people? Well, Christians do believe that people wrote it. But we believe that the process of them writing it was completely superintended by God and they were carried along by the spirit so that what they ended up writing in their own words and their own personality ended up being the perfect word of God that he had intended. He led them to, to his intended place as they used their personality. And so it's kind of like the way people go down water slides. Like they're, they're different kinds of people. 
who go down water slides. They're, they're the people who are the screamers who like just jump in and then the whole way down they're yelling and you can kind of hear that echoing as they, they go around. Then there are the people who are like the scared people who go down five feet and regret it and then just start like clawing and they're going down terrified as they go down. They're always like the daredevils who are trying to like spin around and go down slides like you're not supposed to go down a slide. But at the end, everybody ends up in the pool or on the news, but, but usually, usually in the pool, they all get to the intended place, but they do get there in different ways. And the Bible was written by, by different people over a period of 1800 years on three different continents, different personalities. Some of them were kings. Some of them were peasants. They had different races. They had different backgrounds. And, and they wrote, carried along by God. And because God had designed the process, they ended up exactly where God wanted them, writing the word of God. And Peter says, if I had any doubts before, it was all confirmed when I saw Jesus. I hung out with him and I trust the word even more now. So he wants us to trust the Bible as God's word. So how do we know that it is the word of God? How do we know that what we have is inspired? First, start with Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead. And again, you, you want to listen to the guy who rose from the dead. He knows what he's talking about. He's the authority on things. He's got power like none of us have. And so we want to know what Jesus had to say about everything. Well, there are multiple authors who all attested to the fact that Jesus quoted the Bible a lot, that Jesus quoted the Old Testament. They had a very high regard for the Old Testament. And at the time of Jesus, the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, it was fixed. It was established. It was divided into three sections, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Jesus quoted from all of those sections. Jesus said this about it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus wasn't trying to unhitch us from the Old Testament. He wasn't trying to say the Old, Old, Old Testament wasn't valid. He came along and he said, it will endure. It will be fulfilled. And it's accurate right down to the dot on an I. So we believe that the Bible in its original manuscripts was inspired by God, that there was verbal plenary inspiration, verbal in that every word was inspired and plenary meaning the whole thing was inspired. God gave us that whole thing. So that's the Old Testament, but you read the Old Testament and it is clearly not a finished book. In fact, most of the stories in the Old Testament have terrible endings. Like, like here's this king and he's going to be the hero and this is the one. And then he like fails and falls and dies. Or you read Deuteronomy and at the beginning of Deuteronomy, God says there's going to be another prophet like Moses who comes someday. And then the end of Deuteronomy, Moses dies and God says, eh, another prophet like him never came. And you're like, well, that's a bad story. Like, where, where is this all going? And you, you hear these prophetic proclamations. You don't see them fulfilled. You read the Old Testament and it's clearly not finished yet. It, it's a book of stories with bad endings and disappointing would-be heroes. And then around 400 BC, it stopped being written. Things just went silent. The prophets stopped speaking. These people who were hearing words from the Lord and were writing them down, all of a sudden said those words aren't coming. Which is kind of weird because if they had been making it up all along, why not keep making it up in 400 BC? 
Like, what was the difference? But they noticed that there was a difference, and so they were silent for, for 400 years. And then all of a sudden, about 4 BC, the silence is broken. An angel appears to Mary and speaks and says, you are going to have a son. And so Jesus is born. He, he lives, he dies, he's buried, he rises again. And that resurrection proves that he's real and true and he, that he is who he says he is. It proves that his words can be trusted because he conquered death. He knows what he's talking about. And while he was alive, he had 12 apostles. And he said this to them in John 14. He said, these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So then Jesus departs and these 12 apostles are given prophet-like authority to continue writing that book. And so remember that the prophets spoke as they were moved by God and they wrote a book of which Jesus said every pen stroke was from God. It was all inspired. And these apostles now will pick up where they left off. And it would make sense that if the prophets wrote in one way, perfectly inspired, and the book wasn't done yet, that the rest of the book would be completed by other people who are perfectly inspired. And so Jesus gave authority to these apostles. He didn't ask people to just take them at their word, but he gave them power to do miracles with a level of authority that none of us have. So for example, in Acts chapter three, verse six, there's a man laying there. He's been paralyzed from the time he was born and Peter walks along and Peter says to him, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the guy does. He just heals this guy with a level of authority that none of us have. I mean, we can, we can and do certainly pray for God to heal people. And when God heals people, we celebrate the fact that he healed people, but we don't go up to them with that kind of authority and say, you must be healed right now. We don't have that, but Peter did. So you could believe the things that Peter had to say. He had authority. And the New Testament is the authoritative writings of guys with that kind of authority, those same 12 apostles. Now, out of all the, the books in the New Testament, there are five that were not written by those apostles. Mark, Luke, Acts, Hebrews, and Jude. Those weren't written directly by those people, but they were written by people who walked with them and had strong relationships with them and had firsthand knowledge of the things of Jesus. So for example, Mark interviewed Peter. Luke interviewed lots of people, but he interviewed Mary and Paul. Jude was written by Jude, the brother of Jesus, so he knew Jesus pretty well. Hebrews was widely accepted early on because people thought it was written by Paul. And then all the rest are written by apostles. Maybe not James, but if it wasn't the apostle James, it was definitely James, the brother of Jesus. And so, so he's legit. So you have the authority of the apostles that confirms to us that the New Testament is also just as much scripture, just as much the word of God as the Old Testament is. But let's say you don't trust those guys. Let's say you trust Peter because he was right there hanging out with Jesus. He was Jesus's best friend. He did those miracles. But I don't know about all these other people who wrote the New Testament. Well, let's just trust Peter. Listen to what he says in 2 Peter 3.15 about the writings of Paul. He says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. 
So he says, first, an encouraging thing that sometimes it's hard to understand what Paul writes. So if you feel like it's hard to understand what Paul writes in the Bible, the Bible agrees with you. And so, so it's fine. But he said, some people twist that and, and to their own destruction they do. And he says, just like they do with the other scriptures. So Peter calls what Paul wrote scriptures. And it's the word graphe there that every other, every other place that's used in the New Testament, it's used to refer to the Old Testament. So he puts Paul's writings on par with that inspired Old Testament that Jesus quoted. So follow us so far. If, if Jesus is legit, Peter's legit. If Peter's legit, then Paul's legit. And then we wonder about the others, and we can't look at all this now, but in 1 Timothy 5.8, Paul quotes from Luke's gospel and calls that scripture. So we have this really coherent internal picture being formed that, that if you trust Jesus, you can trust the New Testament to be the word of God. On top of that, we, we have a high confidence that God's faithful and will teach his church. It'd be really weird if he didn't give his word to teach his church with. We've got the intangible work of the Holy Spirit through the generations where people have opened up the word and had their lives completely changed by it, whether it's Augustine or Martin Luther or many of us. We read these words and maybe not even believing they're true, but by the time we're done reading them, we do believe. The Bible is written like an authentic book, not like a book of legends, because it doesn't paint its founders other than Jesus as heroic. I mean, you would expect that if, if Peter's this great hero, that you would read these heroic stories about him. But man, you read about Peter in the Gospels, and he's bumbling, he's opening up his mouth, he's saying dumb things on the mountain of transfiguration. Why would the Bible tell us those stories? Because it tells us the truth. The Bible rings true, and it just makes sense of reality makes sense of our own sinfulness, makes sense of how we're supposed to live and the call to love our enemies. The word of God that we have is true. And Peter's application of that in verse 19 is, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So the scripture shows us Jesus. And he says, pay attention to the word of God until you see Jesus. Until that day dawns, until you see him, be looking at the word of God because the word of God is where we see Jesus most clearly until we can see him face to face. You know, sometimes in our day, we'll, we'll hear that people should live lives that are centered on Jesus, not the Bible, and, and try to divide those two things. But in reality, it's the Bible that shows us Jesus. We don't choose between those things. The Bible tells us who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. The Bible tells us of the gospel of Jesus where he died to pay for our sins. It tells us what those things mean. It tells us what his heart is like. It tells us what his words are. And so we don't choose between Bible and Jesus. We open the Bible and allow it to point us to Jesus. And so Peter says, you want to wake up from your sleep, then pay attention to the word. Allow the word to put your eyes on Jesus. Allow it to fix your eyes on him until you see him face to face. And even then, the word of God will remain while our eyes are fixed on him in person. So he's given us his, his word to give us Jesus. Another great gift that he's given us is that he's confirmed that word and made that word visible through the Lord's Supper. And we hear these words and we think, okay, that's good, but I want something tangible. I want like an experience. I, I want something more. And we're made 
as tangible people, we're made for experience. We're weak and we're struggling and we want to see something. We want to touch something. We want to experience something. And so Jesus gave us some bread and some wine as some visible signs and seals of his grace. And these elements of the Lord's Supper display what the Bible teaches. In the gospel, Jesus promises us forgiveness for our sins. He promises us everlasting life. He promises pardon from all that we've done. He tells us that he was our substitute when he died on the cross to pay the price for us. And then he demonstrates it and confirms it by giving us the Lord's Supper. Sometimes called the word made visible. 